Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartMedia. So as this publishes, um, it is Juneteenth here in America, which is a national holiday celebrating the end of slavery. Um, so that's June 19th, 2020. Because, uh, you know, who knows when you were actually listening to this. Right. Uh, of course, everything is always a little different in podcast world and then put onto that pandemic world. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> that yeah. just changes dates altogether, right? Yeah. I thought it was like August yesterday. Right. So, and it is not. It, <laughs> it well, is not. I just figured out it wasn't February, so we're doing really well, which I can't even say the word February really well. Uh, so, that's even more fun. One of my least favorite months because I can't say it and I have to completely say it all the time because it's for some reason that's when t- time stopped. <laughs> yeah. It was like the last time we were out. Right. Uh, yes. Essentially it was March but we were under the panic we're starting to get into the panic mode Yes. of that. Yes. But uh, for those of you who are not in the U.S. Um, Juneteenth Again, as she was saying, was the celebration at the end of slavery. And honestly, it actually hasn't come to the forefront to, I guess, um, I don't know what I'll say, other than white culture, um, main culture, because it is uh, dictated by white culture in the U.S. um, for many people, because we like to neglect history, especially Mm -hmm. when it's something that is as divisive as race. And even though you would think it makes sense because it was a good thing and we should celebrate um, the end of something so horrid. But as you can tell with all the protests and all of the things that are happening in the U.S., we're not always on the same page and it sucks. But we will <laughs> definitely think that it is important and we did want to talk about it. And I will say from my own ignorance, I didn't learn about Juneteenth until I started working when I was in my government job. And the majority of the workers in my field are uh, people of color. So when I had heard of Juneteenth and I was like, what is that? It really was about 15 years ago that Mm -hmm. I actually learned about it. And it's obnoxious and so sad to me that it took that long. And it took into my mid-20s to know what the hell was happening. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I learned about it in high school and civics, but it was sort of just like maybe literally a sentence. Right. Um, and then when I moved to Atlanta, I, I did. But yeah, yeah. It's a shame. Um, so for that sort of related, we thought we would do an episode on women and organizing, since we are seeing that a lot of that right now. And that is a space that Black women have shown a lot of leadership in now and historically. And, and so <laughs> there's a lot of ground to Oof. cover in this, in this one. So it's a two-parter, and pretty much everything we mentioned could be an entire episode, everything and everyone. Um, And if you want, if you're listening and there's a specific topic or person that you want us to focus in on for an entire episode, as always, let us know. We're happy to hear from you. Um, Also, disclaimer, almost everything and everyone we're talking about um, were a part of, they were a part of several complex social narratives, and uh, there's a whole history behind every story we're telling of unrest that culminated into a specific thing or things that they're known for. I just want to put that out there because some of these protests or uh, marches we're going to mention 
there was just so much leading up to them. Right. And sometimes it can sound like, oh, there was one event and people protested it. But almost always, there was so much history that was leading up to that thing. Right. And just to add to that, as she is saying, yes, these are such broad topics, as well as the fact that these people are iconic, if we're mentioning them, that, yeah, we kind of just dumbed it down to three sentences, maybe. (laughs) Because we were just thought that it was so important that we do at least talk a little bit about them. And if nothing else, A, yes, let us know if you're like, hey, tell me more about this one. Can you please research it? Or B, you can research it yourself, Um, which is fantastic because I will tell you, trying to research this, I had 10,000 tabs up and it completely drove me a little... (laughs) <laughs> mm. over the edge uh, because there's so much and trying to narrow down some of this conversation was, it felt like I was sacrificing things because I wanted to yeah. talk so much about so many things. But yes, this ended up being a two-parter and overall theme is women who are, and those who identify as female who are just badasses that came together and had enough and said, this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Also, yes, As we said earlier, it's been a very long month, Um, but honestly, it's been productive. And I say that due to the fact of the many tragedies and injustices that have plagued our nation and that we've been ignoring um, and pretty much everywhere for, well, I guess kind of since the beginning of time, let's just say it that way, with the tragedies and murders of the people of the black community, people have come together and are following the lead of the black community to protest and speak out against injustices with rallies, gathering, and marches. And so we kind of wanted to honor what's going on to talk about historical context of what some marches or protests were able to accomplish or have done or why it was important. And as a result of people organizing And being out in the streets every day, we are seeing changes in in the United States. Even if we look at just public opinion or or actual changes in in things like um, policing. And a lot of the steps we have seen are small and we need to take more steps. but, But that is encouraging. We are seeing things happen because, directly because of people doing this work. Um, And as we've seen that, if you look back in history, um, the effectiveness and the power in protesting and marching. So yeah, we are going to be doing a quick rundown or spotlight on some of the the big big events in history when it comes to that. Um, And yeah, this is a pretty condensed look at those things. And also, uh, there's just so many uh, we could have talked about. Um, I was thinking about the Underground Railroad earlier and <laughs> yeah. organizing around that. Um, but yeah, here are some some women and their roles in past protests and rebellions that we wanted to, to highlight today. And we're going to start um, outside of the U.S. doing uh, a conversation about the Women's March on Versailles. So during the wild times... Yes, I said the wild times. This is mm-hmm. completely inappropriate when talking about this. But the wild times of the French Revolution, which when French royalty held court in Versailles, uh, due to the lack of food and scarcity of bread, a woman began marching down the streets with a drum, which actually garnered a lot of attention, and others began to join her march. Uh, the numbers grew to be thousands, and many joined uh, as a part of this uncivil uprising. 
And though it began as a peaceful thing, many of the people started gathering weapons like kitchen knives and even muskets and swords. They gathered even more weapons and food and essentials from the city hall. Uh, The gathering started simply due to the lack of bread, but grew to be uh, a demand to end the food scarcity as well as an idea of being armed for the ongoing revolution and it did. It was, a. am sure a lot of you know about the French Revolution and all of the changes that came from that. Uh, oh my gosh, so many things we could talk about there. But uh, yeah, essentially, a uh, woman started it uh, protesting with bread. Oh, about right. lack of bread. The things I know about the French Revolution include the things that I learned from Les Mis, so there's that. <laughs> I'm amazing, right? <laughs> yes, yes. I've never seen Les Mis, but I love one of my favorite SNL skits is the John Mulaney lobster, diner lobster one. So I don't know if I know this one. Oh, gosh. I to go love look it. it up. Yes, yes. Um, and we're going to transition. And I did want to start talking about Mary Harris Jones, otherwise known as... Mother Jones. And just in case you don't know who she is, uh, we wanted to make sure to give you a brief overview of her. So she's been discussed before on the show with other hosts where they were discussing the Women's March and the suffragettes and the labor movement. But you can never have too much information, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I say. So Mary Harris Jones was an Irish immigrant who was a leader and organizer for many protests and strikes in the labor movement in the U.S. She became an iconic figure to the movement with her leaning into it as a maternal figurehead for the actual movement. So after she lost her entire family to yellow fever at the age of 30, she dressed only in black and often wore antique dresses and would purposely age herself to seem more motherly. She was known and called Mother Jones or sometimes just Mother during her time of activism. And she traveled around the country leading strikes and protests for miners, unions, and child workers. And that's miners as in (laughs) M-I-N-E-R-S, not like young folks. Um, Although she was, she was for for them too. Both of them. Yeah, 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 both. In 1903, she organized the March of the Mill Children and went from Philadelphia to Long Island, which is where President Theodore Roosevelt's summer home was located. Yeah, her activism and leadership led to the growth of different labor unions, as well as bringing attention to the corrupt politicians and businesses around the country, which I cannot believe happened that she was able to lead that. She was hired all over the country to speak at rallies and gatherings throughout the labor movement, and she wrote articles for magazines and newspapers to rally the working people and become, again, the figurehead for this labor movement. But with all of this... She actually was not a fan of women's right to vote. Uh, She would often state that voting was not what would change things and help the suffering of miners and laborers. But she would say that voting was a classist idea that would not help the poor. She also was more into the traditional idea of women keeping their place in the home, that cult of domesticity, perhaps, saying that the husband's and men's job needed to be paid more uh, to help maintain this household. So there is that. Right. So around the same time, which is why she said all these things, the suffragette movement was happening. Um, And we're not going to stick too long on the topic of suffragettes as it's been discussed a few times on the show, but we want to do a quick review and also take a closer look at the segregation and how the Black women who were actually a part of the movement 
were oftentimes excluded from the conversation or even events. Right. So if we start with the Seneca Falls Convention, um, that kind of marked the beginning of the movement where reformists Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott held a meeting in 1848 to discuss the overall issues of rights for women. This was during the time of the idea of the cult of true womanhood, which was the idea that, quote, true women were submissive, dutiful to their families and husbands, and of course, pious. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh. I love how we both kind of made that, like, <laughs> yeah. hand under the chin <laughs> gesture. <laughs> That's what pious conjures in my mind. Me too. Um, so that that slowly fell out of favor, which is why reformists started coming together to discuss the need for women to be able to practice their political and civil rights. The convention was a two-day affair where sessions were offered for discussions, forums, and lectures of women and their role in society. It was during this time that the Declaration of Sentiments, or Declaration of Rights and Sentiments, was created and signed by 100 of the attendees at the convention, which did include 32 men. The Declaration was modeled after the Declaration of Independence, and even though it was a big time for women and women leadership, uh, the call of suffrage, suffrage was actually not something that all of the women and other participants agreed on. It wasn't until Frederick Douglass made an impassioned appeal um, that they added it to the Declaration. Right, and during the movement, parades and protests and pickets were utilized to raise their voices and bring attention to the need for equal representation, um, including the suffrage parade of 1913 uh, the, and, and the pickets in 1916 and 1917, which led to the arrest of 218 women. And the arrested women were placed at workhouses located in Virginia, which eventually led to public outrage over the treatment of the women in the jails that led to the 19th Amendment. The suffragette movement was a large coalition of different organizations during their time, including the National Women's Suffrage Association, National Women's Party, and the National American Women's Suffrage Association. And then there was one specifically ran by Ida B. Wells called the Alpha Suffrage Club, which was one of the few African-American ran movements and coalitions and organizations at that time. Something else we did want to talk about was leaving Black women out of this whole thing. Uh, when we look at the suffragette movement. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So yeah, um, we did want to talk about how Black women were sort of left out of a lot of these things happening with the suffragette movement. Um, They're being pulled in two different directions, two different movements, women's suffrage and abolition. So in the late 1800s, Black women were very active politically and would often be a part of the many political meetings and organizations that were going on. Many of the African-American women not only attended many political gatherings, but they also worked at churches, newspapers, and colleges, which would give them platforms to discuss and criticize the need for the women's suffrage movement, as well as being abolitionists and civil rights advocates. But with that, African-American women were often excluded from planning and organizing or just left out altogether. The NAWSA even prevented African-American women from attending their conventions. But even with all that, there are several African-American women of note who pushed forward and became icons in the movement and continued to fight for women and their right to vote. 
Right. And we kind of already mentioned Ida B. Wells. And as we already discussed, there was a big divide when it came to support for black women and women of color when it came to, well, everything, including the suffragette movement. And though they were not supported, black women still supported the movement, marched with them. And as we already talked about, activist Ida B. Wells worked for the women's right to vote, as well as being an activist for anti-lynching and abolition. She helped to create the Alpha Suffrage Club, which gave voice for African-American women when the rest of the suffragette clubs and organizations did not include nor allow them to participate. Another civil rights leader and a part of the suffragette movement was Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin. She, along with Lucy Stone and Julia Ward Howe, began the American Women's Suffrage Association, which worked exclusively on the suffrage movement, while other organizations worked on that within broader gender issues. She also organized the Women's Era Club, which was one of the very first African-American women's organizations in 1894. And she and Charlotte Fortin Grimke, who was a poet and teacher and civil rights activist, formed the National Association of Colored Women. And we should also note that, that their motto was lifting as we climb, and their goal was to, quote, uplift black women as they climb. Yeah, and it's something to talk about that that's kind of been an underlying theme as this new wave of protests have been happening recently about uplifting women and bringing each other up. And I love, I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, we want to talk about another big name in the suffrage movement, Nanny Helen Burroughs. Much like the other two women discussed above, she believed the success and survival for women, specifically African-American women, was education and skills training. She was able to establish a school for poor working African-American women after she was denied a teaching position in D.C. She created a school with monetary support from women and children, which typically were not large amounts, but she was able to collect enough to open the National Training School for Women and Girls. And before she opened the school, Nanny was part of a different organization, including the Women's Auxiliary, which under her leadership became heavily involved with the suffrage movement and reform. As one article stated, quote, she believed suffrage for American women was crucial to protect their interests in often discriminatory society, which I love. Yes. Someone else we wanted to mention was Mary McLeod Bethune. And if you don't know her name, you definitely should look her up because she did uh, something. She did a lot. Um, she was a teacher, a leader, a businesswoman, and a government official. After moving to Florida, where she taught as well as sold insurance, she opened a boarding school in um, Daytona Beach that was dedicated to teaching Black girls' um, literacy and industrial skills, which eventually became a college that would later merge with an all-male college and be renamed the Bethune-Cookman College. And she founded many different organizations and led voter registration drives after women were given the right to vote. She became president of the National Association of the Colored Women's Club, and she was founding president of a national council for black women. She eventually was appointed by President Franklin Roosevelt as a director for black affairs of the National Youth Administration. She was the, quote, unofficial leader of FDR's black cabinet. She fought to end lynching and discrimination and organized a conference around the problems of black people and specifically black young people in 1937. She was later appointed by President Truman as the only woman of color at the founding conference of the United Nations in 1945. 
And that's, we also wanted to talk about Lucy Parsons, who was actually a self-proclaimed anarchist. And when I was researching her, it just seemed so eerie because some of the things that she was saying is so along the lines of what's happening today and what's being said today, specifically to police brutality as well as um, socialism and capitalism. So I thought that this was definitely someone we wanted to talk about. So for, for those of you who don't know, actually, the Chicago Police Department stated that she and her husband, Albert Parsons, were, quote, more dangerous than a thousand rioters. Um, she and her husband were activists involved in the labor movement and were activists for political prisoners, people of color, and the homeless and women. Uh, she continued to be active in her writing and speaking for the labor movement and for the Socialist Party even after her husband's death. She led marches for working seamstresses in Chicago, was a part of the Haymarket Affair, which started as a peaceful event in support of the eight-hour workday. Um, and by the way, this is also called the Haymarket Riots or Haymarket Massacre, where her her husband, Albert Parsons, who, it's good to know, was white, and um, she and her husband left Texas due to the fact that interracial relationships and marriages were not condoned. Right. Um, where her husband, Albert Parsons, spoke and would later be executed for conspiracy for the rally, though many feel it was a frame job and that the rally was actually peaceful. Um she later focused her activism to poverty and unemployment and would lead more protests and hunger strikes, including the Chicago hunger demonstrations in January 1915, which led to the several organizations coming together for a large protest on February 12th of that year. She was a part of different organizations, including the Industrial Workers of the World, the National Committee of the International Labor Defense, and also joined the Communist Party in 1939. And if you've not actually seen or read any part of her speech where she says, I am an anarchist. You should. It is a powerful, powerful speech. And again, it's eerily relatable to today. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, and we did want to talk about the modern civil rights movement as well. But first, we're going to take one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. back. Thank you, sponsor. And yeah, we wanted to look at some of the women behind the modern civil rights movement. And this is one of those that could and should and probably in the future will be its own episode or probably episodes. But yeah, we did want to look at some of the powerful women involved in this movement. And we're not going to talk too much about the people who are well-known, but wanted to focus on some of the women that we don't typically hear as much about. For example, Diane Nash. Um, so, of course, Nash is not unknown, but we did want to make sure that we highlight how big her part in the protest within the movement was. As a student leader for the movement in Tennessee, she was one of the organizers for many of the sit-ins and protests in that area. She became the chairman or chairwoman for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, which was a youth civil rights organization that worked with direct action campaigns. As the leader, she was able to organize a bunch of sit-ins at lunch counters around the city, which eventually led to being the first southern city to desegregate these businesses. She also, much like the African-American activists of the suffragettes movement, worked for the rights of African-Americans to vote. She co-initiated the Alabama Voting Rights Project and worked with the Selma Voting Rights Movement. 
Yeah, and because of her activism and her leadership, she would be arrested on several occasions, including being threatened with two years in jail for, quote, contributing to the delinquency of minors for teaching nonviolent actions to college students. Um, it is something to note that she was released after 10 days, but it happened just because the judge just let them go, like just let the charges go. <laughs> and hmm. she believes, actually, she did state that she believed it may have something to do with the phone taps and the conversations that was happening between her and other people. And because of that, they uh, released her in uh, fear of causing more rioting. Mm. And Oh, and because also she was pregnant. So that also has something to do with it as well. Mm -hmm. She continued to work in activism as housing rights advocate and worked with low-income communities in the Chicago area. And just a few years ago, she actually helped raise funds for the autopsy of Rexdale Henry, who was a Native American uh, man arrested and who was found dead under suspicious circumstances while incarcerated. And yes, she is still alive. And uh, they have interviewed her about the Black Lives Movement, and she says she's a full supporter. So it's really cool to see what she has done and continues to support today. Right. Um, and then we wanted to talk about Johnny Carr, who was an activist and was childhood friends with Rosa Parks. And she was a big component of the Montgomery bus boycotts. She and her husband also filed a lawsuit against the Montgomery County School Board to integrate their school system with their son as the litigant against the school in 1964 and won their case. They won their case in 1969. Speaking of Rosa Parks, we did want to bring attention to Claudette Colvin, who was actually arrested nine months before Rosa Parks for not moving to the back of the bus. She was 15 years old at the time, and she was one of four in the lawsuit Browder versus Gale, the court case that successfully overturned bus segregation laws in Montgomery and Alabama at large. According to an interview she gave, she stated she felt she was not as well-known or recognized because she didn't fit the narrative as well as Rosa Parks. She said Mrs. Parks had, quote, the right hair and the right look and that she, quote, fit the profile. She also said that Mrs. Parks was an adult as where she was a teenager and she felt that the consensus was that an adult would be more reliable. Right. I think it was really interesting because they were saying, why do you think you weren't as well known or why was Rosa Parks the beginning of the movement when in actuality you were the first to say, I'm not moving? Um, and that that was the reasoning behind it in that recent interview. And her history is kind of sad, actually, when you look at all the things that she had to go through, but she was a big part of what happened. We also wanted to talk about Dorothy Height, and, and I don't doubt many of you already know who she is, as she was given the title of godmother of the civil rights movement. But as a fellow social worker, I wanted to just bring her up for people to remember how amazing she was, because <laughs> we should, right? right? Yes, she was a protege of Mary McLeod Bethune, who we talked about earlier in regards to the suffragette movement. And she was known for organizing many events and protests during the modern civil rights movement, including the 1963 March on Washington. But she also worked to bring awareness to the victimization of women, specifically women of color and black women, in the domestic work field. Uh, to add to this, she is known as one of the first to openly acknowledge the intersectional need to advocate for racial and gender rights. As where before, they were seen as two separate fights. Height brought both both to the forefront in understanding for black women, they couldn't just fight for one without the other. And to the point during the early 60s, she instituted a Wednesdays in Mississippi, which brought white women and black women together from all over to talk and have an open dialogue. She became a mediator to help communicate and to effectively teach. Uh, just, she was a powerhouse to say the least. You know what I just realized? 
<laughs> yes. I didn't just realize that, but yes, I agree. But we never played Suffragetto. Oh, yeah. We need to, you know, I wonder like, if that's a game her. we can play in uh, <laughs> in our can virtual hangout that? time. Can we do that virtually? <laughs> I'll look into it. I'll look into it. But yeah, I really want to play Suffragetto. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so something else that I wanted to talk about is this idea I've been mulling over for a while, which is protest cookbooks and just food as a form of protest. Um, and so, yeah, if if you look at food, it is very political. And oppressed communities and historically Black communities have used food for protest as protest. Um, after all, the resistance has to be fueled. And, and we're seeing this now. People handing out water and granola bars at protest. Or here in Georgia, there's that pizza delivery to, to people waiting hours in line at the polls to vote. Um, from the time enslaved people were forcefully brought here and they, they fought to keep their cuisines alive, to raiding the food of white plantation owners, to passing coded messages at food gatherings at churches, to farming in highly gentrified areas, to sit-ins at restaurants. Um, when it comes to the civil right movement in America, you had women like Georgia Gilmore after losing her job as a cafeteria worker in Montgomery, started using her home to feed leaders of the movement. And she founded the Club From Nowhere, which was a club that sold baked goods at churches to raise funds for the protest. Here in Atlanta, we have a restaurant called Pascal's, which was one of the few white tablecloth restaurants that allowed Black people to dine in at the time, and it became a hub for planning protests. And if we look at the Black Panther Party formed in 1966, the founders included food as a part of their 10 points program. Quote, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. They also implemented the free breakfast program to feed students in their communities, particularly black students. Um, and the government conducted raids on these uh, to, in an attempt to stop the program, but eventually went on to adopt the program, um, having uh, within our schools, those kind of things. So, yeah, I just, I feel like I've been thinking about this a lot for the other podcast I do, Savor, and just how... Uh, food has been used in this way. And I think a lot of times it gets left out or it isn't thought about. But yeah. Yeah, and as we see today, it's still uh, a conversation, whether we're talking about EBT and food stamps or we're talking about the free lunch program and uh, lunch debt, lunch school debt, which yeah. has been a big part of the political conversation with our current administration as if that is a privilege instead of the fact that we're actually trying to provide uh, for these children and why are we holding these over their heads like they're adults who are trying to cheat the system. It's so absurd. But yeah, you're absolutely right. This is a big point of contention and it is a big part of why many of the protests have happened, whether it is because of homelessness or, or the lack of food. Right. And... and um, if you want, if, if this is something you're curious in, you can search protest cookbooks uh, and you'll get a wide range of things. But some of them are, you know, here's how to cook for a protest. And some are just reclaiming foods and histories that have been appropriated. So it's something I personally find really fascinating. So we've covered a lot of ground, Samantha. Um, we have. But it's just a tidbit. 
I know. It is both somehow a lot and just very surface area. But we do have a lot more we want to talk about. However, this is the end of part one. So now we have a cliffhanger. What other protests and organizations are we going to talk about? (laughs) It's a mystery. What? You'll have to listen to find out. Um, So stay tuned for part two. In the meantime, if there is anything we talked about that you want us to discuss more in depth, please let us know. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can also find us on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou or on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. Um, Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Super duper. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hold up. 